0: If you have your Bibles, go ahead and grab them at this point in time. uh, We're going to be kind of skipping around through the scriptures, but I'd invite you to start uh, by turning to the book of Deuteronomy, is where we're going to begin. We are in the midst of a sermon series entitled, Heaven, All Things New. And uh, just to catch you up, we just uh, started that last Sunday, and uh, we talked about uh, just an introduction to heaven, how we should long for heaven as our true home. Uh, This morning, in Heaven Part 2, I've entitled the sermon, Is Heaven For real, a theology of near-death experiences. So I want to ask that question and take a look specifically at this phenomenon known as near-death experiences. So uh, go ahead and grab your Bibles if you have them. Turn with me to Deuteronomy. We'll be uh, we'll be flipping around quite a bit as we go. So uh, trust that you're there or close to it, and uh, let's let's pray, and then we'll jump right in. So if you would pray with me together. Father, we ask that you would help us to think rightly about this issue. Uh, We want to understand from your word um, what it is and what it means as we evaluate uh, those who have had experiences like this. We pray that you would show us that heaven is for real. And it's for real because your word has revealed it to us, because you have had those who have gone before us in visions, have had revelations of heaven, and you, through your inspired word, you have spoken of heaven. And so we trust in that, and we believe that it's real, because you said so. Give us grace. Help us to be able to think rightly and live rightly in light of that. We pray it in the name of Jesus, the one who, um, the one who descended from heaven, the one who ascended back into heaven, and the one who is coming again. It's in his name that we ask it. And all God's people said, amen. Blaine, can you turn me down a little bit? Feel a feel a little hot up here. So, thanks. All right, so uh, the preview that we just saw is uh, from, of course, a movie entitled Heaven is for Real. Uh, Now, you may know or you may not know that this movie is based on a a book, a fairly recent book that is uh, the same name called Heaven is for Real. It's written by a a pastor by the name of Todd Burpo, and he writes about his son's time in heaven during uh, a near-death experience, as you saw in the movie. Uh, The book, I don't know if you've read it or not, I had the chance to read it a few weeks ago, uh, sold over 7 million copies and spent roughly 50 weeks on the New York bestseller list. Now, Heaven is for Real is really only the latest of a rash of books that have hit the Christian bookstores on what I will call near-death experiences. Uh, So a while back, a man by the name of Don Piper uh, got it started with his book, On the screen, 90 Minutes in Heaven, uh, followed by uh, a book by the name of 23 Minutes in Hell, uh, Bill Weiss. So you can read about heaven, apparently, by Don Piper, 90 Minutes in Heaven, and you can read about hell if you want. 23 Minutes by Bill Bill Weiss, Um, and these are really just the beginning. Uh, If you go prior to that, you really just have a whole list of books Uh, about near-death experiences. So I just want to show a few of them to you. There are many more than what I took time to put on the screen, but here's just a few. Uh, How about this one, The Boy Who Came Back from Heaven by Kevin Malarkey. Uh, How about this one, My Journey to Heaven, What I Saw and How It Changed My Life by Marvin Bestman. Uh, Yet another one, Heaven and Back. A True Story by Mary Neal. And uh, if I wanted to go on and on, literally, I could go on and on and on. Uh, I just want to share a few interesting facts about these kind of books, these near-death experience books. Uh, First of all, they they have sold, collectively, I would say in the past five to ten years, they have sold more, these books, than all Bible commentaries and Bible reference works combined. That's interesting, isn't it? sold more than Bible commentaries and Bible reference books combined. Secondly, these uh, near-death experience books are statistically the most financially lucrative type of nonfiction book in the, catch this, history. In the history of Christian publishing. So what that tells us is that these books, these near-death experience books, are going faster than hotcakes, right? They're just being devoured um, by Christians, I've read one or two of them myself. And so it begs a question, actually a couple questions, but really one main question. What are we to think about these type of books? How are we supposed to consider them? What should we do with them? Well, I certainly don't have time to take each of these books individually and examine them and talk about them. I've only read one or two myself. What I'd like to do is think about what the Bible says to help us form what I will call a theology of near-death experiences. In other words, what, what does the Bible say? Does it have anything to say to help us think about these kind of books, this phenomenon of near-death experiences. And again, while I can't address them individually, I think we can form a pretty uh, good theology of how to think about near-death experiences. So what I want to do is uh, simply two points. So if you're taking notes, it's not complicated. First of all, I want to look at the biblical account of resurrections and the biblical account of those who have had visions of heaven. Now, that's quite a list, as we're going to see in a little bit, so we can't go through all of those passages. However, in just a moment, just a moment I'll show you a, a list of those who were raised from the dead in the Bible and those who had visions of heaven. I'd encourage you just to jot those, those references down. You can get them from me afterwards if you want. We're not going to look at them individually, but I, what, what I want to do is just look at them collectively. Look at those who had resurrections, who were raised from the dead, and then those who did have visions of heaven, And ask the question, what can they teach us about how to think about near-death experiences from a biblical perspective? So first of all, let's take a look at resurrections. Let's begin by looking at those who came back to life after death, after being dead, what the Bible calls resurrection. Uh, I'm going to exclude Jesus from this list. Of course, he was raised from the dead. But his resurrection, the Bible says, was very unique. It was a unique resurrection from those... uh, in the Bible that were raised, because his was raised an eternal and immortal, uh, raised, uh, resurrected, glorified body. He is, uh, the Bible tells us, the first fruits of our future resurrection. So we're going to exclude Jesus, but I want to look at the rest of the people, first of all, who were raised from the dead. So here's the list um, behind us. It's a comparatively uh, a short list. I'll just read it through you. First of all, uh, there was the widow of Zarephath's son in First Kings 17. Secondly, you see the Shunammite and uh, her child was raised in 2 Kings 4. We see the dead man who happened to touch Elijah's bones on accident, 2 Kings 13. We, of course, moving into the New Testament, we have uh, Jairus' daughter, Matthew 9. Let's go to the next slide. We have the widow of Nain's son, Luke chapter 7. We have, of course, the one that I think most of us think about. We think of Lazarus as Jesus raised him from the dead, John chapter 11. Uh, we have a reference to uh, multiple, many saints who were raised after Jesus' resurrection, and that's recorded for us in Matthew 27. And then we have a couple more. We have Dorcas, Acts chapter 9, and this is my favorite. Acts chapter 20, verses 9 through 12, with Eutychus. Do you remember what happened with Eutychus just by, by hand? Paul was preaching in the upper room. Remember this story? He's preaching, and uh, like all good preachers do, they go long, right? So he was going long, I mean— through into the night long. You think I'm long? Boy, he went long. And there's this young fellow by the name of Eutychus, and apparently he's, he's sitting or standing by a window. And like some of you do during my sermons, he falls asleep. And uh, he falls over uh, down uh, into, the, into the ground and dies. And then, of course, Paul raises him back to life. That's my favorite one. So that's it. Those are the list of biblical resurrections. And what I want us to do, again, we can't look at them individually. Uh, you can write these down. I can make them available to you. In fact, I really encourage you to go look through them because what you find out, and this is what I did in my study this week, when you look at the common features, when you look at what was in common, what all of the, uh, these people who were raised from the dead, you, you see a pattern emerging. You see some common features, and I just want to list three of them for you. First of all, what we find out from these accounts of resurrection is that these people were not near death. Okay, they were not near death. They were not floating in between life and death. They weren't close to death like in most near-death experience accounts, but they were completely dead. They were dead for some time. In fact, with the account of Lazarus, we know that he was dead for how long, remember? Four days. He was dead for four days, and he was raised from the dead. And so, first of all, these guys who were raised from the dead, they were dead. They were not Somewhere in the in-between, they were dead. Secondly, what comes out is that the life that they received, this resurrection that was given to them, it was not a resuscitation. It's not like they were going back and forth and they were, they were kind of healed. They physically kind of got over it and came back to life. In fact, what we see is that an apostle or a prophet or Jesus himself, there was there was some kind of supernatural divine agent that spoke to them or touched them, uh, or in Jesus's case, in one case, he commanded them to come back to life. So this was a miracle that we're talking about. It was people who were dead, and they came back to life miraculously. They were not resuscitated. And here's the third point. And I think it's the most important point that we find when we look at these resurrections in the Bible as it relates to how we're supposed to think about near-death experiences. The third point is this. Not a single one, not a single one spoke of what they experienced either in heaven, presumably, or in hell. That's striking to me. Not a single one, after they came back from the dead, after they came back from heaven, or they came back from hell. Not a single one, at least in the Bible, from what we know in the scriptures, not a single one spoke of what they experienced. This strikes me as uh, significant, as as important. In particular, let's let's think about Lazarus. Remember, Lazarus, we know specifically that he was in the grave. He was in the tomb for four days. And Lazarus, we pretty much get the most information about his resurrection. So Jesus raised him from the dead. And the Bible tells us that it created quite a stir among the Jews there. As you would imagine, if there was somebody who was buried and came up from the grave or the tomb, if you will, after four days, uh, that would create a little stir in our town of Sistna Park, would it not? It would create quite a stir, as it did there in the town where uh, the resurrection happened. But what's interesting is that the text tells us that many people came to believe in Jesus, that he was the Messiah, that he was the Son of God, that his resurrection of Lazarus had a deep impact, but it does not at all indicate that Lazarus was out there talking about his experience. It doesn't indicate that he was out there going town to town, house to house, saying, let me tell you about how wonderful heaven is. No, maybe he did. We, we just don't know. But the Bible is, is silent. If he wanted to, he could have, and yet all of the talk was what Jesus had done. And so this is what we see from the biblical account of resurrections. They were dead, they were supernaturally brought to life, and not a single one spoke of what they had experienced in heaven or in hell. So that's what we find out about people who die and come back to life. But what about people who had visions? What about people who had some kind of experience in heaven? I don't know of any account of someone who had an experience or a vision of hell. But we do know uh, an account of someone who had, multiple people actually, who had visions of heaven. So let's move on to that now. You'll see the list behind me. It's a rather sparse list of those who had visions of heaven. So let's move on if we can. Uh, What we see here... If we can move on. Thank you. Uh, keep going. <laughs> okay, maybe I, maybe I don't have it. Uh, there is a list, and I can give it to you before. I thought it was up there, so my apologies. Uh, but it's a sparse list. I think it's seven people. Seven people who had visions of heaven uh, that we see in the scriptures. So I can find that for you afterwards. Again, there are common characteristics, right? When we look at the visions of heaven— uh, think of people like Ezekiel. Think of people like Daniel. Think of people like John in the, in the Apocalypse, Revelation, right? Think of these kind of people, Isaiah chapter 6, right, who had visions of heaven. Again, there are common characteristics, and I want to share four of them with you. First of all, those who had visions of heaven were all either prophets of, of the Old Testament, apostles of the New Testament, or deacons. One was a deacon. Remember when Stephen was stoned, and what did he see? He saw the heaven opened up and he saw Jesus, right, standing at the right hand of the Father. So they were prophets, they were apostles, they were deacons. In other words, this is not very common. I think seven times in the Bible total, we have a vision of people having uh, seen heaven. Number two, and I think this is particularly pertinent as we think about near-death experiences. Number two, all of them were alive. All of them were alive. They were not dead. They were not near death. All of the people in the Bible who had visions, revelations of heaven were all alive, much unlike these near-death experiences that we see today. Number three, all of the visions of heaven were what I would call, they were God-centered. They were God-centered. So in other words, if you look, it's fascinating— All of the visions involve a throne. In all of the visions, God is sitting on the throne. So the prominent image is that God is big and holy and glorious, and he rules over heaven. There are images of God's glory in colors and in songs. Uh, Oftentimes there are an angelic host. There are angels around that are beautiful and weird to describe, and particularly think about Ezekiel, these descriptions of these angelic beings, there's an emphasis on the holiness of God. Remember Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah describes the angels and what were they doing day and night? What were they singing? Do you remember? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, right? Who was and is and is to come. Holy, holy, holy. The emphasis is on the glory of God and the holiness of God. One biblical author uh, writes it this way. He says all the biblical authors who saw heaven and described their visions were give comparatively sparse details, but they all agree perfectly. Their visions are fixated on the glory of God, which defines heaven and illuminates everything there. He says they are overwhelmed. That is the people who had these visions. They're overwhelmed, chagrined, petrified. They are put to utter silence by the sheer majesty of God's holiness. He writes, notably missing from all the biblical accounts are the frivolous features of juvenile attractions that seem to dominate, in this author's opinion, every account of heaven currently on the bestseller list. And so what we see is that it's utterly about God. God is doing something. He's calling a prophet to preach to the people. He's giving a vision of the future through John. It's intentional. It's not just a trip to heaven and back. It's an intentional vision. And the number four, and the author talked about this, is that when you look at how these people who had a vision of heaven, how they responded to that vision, um, they responded with fear. And I'm not just talking like, oh, reverence. They were afraid for their lives. Fear, reverence, worship. They say things like, woe is me for I'm a sinful man, right? They fall down on their face at the glory of God. And so what do we see, right? This is our first point. We've examined resurrections. We've examined the visions that we see of heaven. I think two truths emerge. Two truths that'll help us think about near-death experiences emerge. And I want to share the first one with you now. The first one is this. While people do, while people do come back from the dead, they don't, at least according to the Bible and the biblical accounts, while people do come back from the dead, they don't talk about it afterwards. So in the Bible, while people do die and come back, they don't talk about it afterwards. And number two, while people do in the Bible speak of their experience in heaven, they do not speak of it from death or near death, right? So while people do have visions of heaven, they're not dead. And so when we put these truths together, what we see is this one unified point is that at least in the biblical accounts, People don't die and then come back and then talk about their experience of heaven as in most near-death experiences, which I think, at least in my mind, at least in my mind, it means that we should start at least with a a healthy skepticism, at least with a healthy skepticism. It's an argument from silence, no doubt. There may be things that happened in the biblical accounts that, that are not recorded for us, and yet. I think what the Bible reveals about resurrections and visions of heaven, at least we should take it into consideration at the very beginning when we consider near-death experiences. So not only does the Bible uh, and its accounts of resurrection and visions of heaven help us and form us to think about near-death experiences, but I want to spend the rest of our time together thinking about five five sets of Scripture. So if you're taking notes, jot one, two, three, four, five. Five sets of Scriptures that I think in addition to resurrection and visions of heaven, I think inform us, they inform us on near-death experiences. Number one, I want to read uh, my point and then we'll get to the text. Number one, God warns us, God warns us against seeking to discover the future outside of what he has revealed, including by communicating with the dead. So let's turn now in our Bibles to Deuteronomy 18. Deuteronomy 18, verses uh, 10 through 20. God speaks to his old, co- uh, his old covenant people, Israel, and this is what he says, verse 10. He says, Let no one be found among you who sacrifices their son or daughter in the fire. Speaking of this pagan practice of sacrifice, who practices, and then he lists just several things, who practices, number one, divination, number two, or sorcery, who seeks to interpret omens who engages in witchcraft or casts spells or who is a medium or a spiritist or who consults the dead. Verse 12, anyone who does these things is detestable to the Lord because of these same detestable practices. The Lord, your God, will drive out those nations before you. So here's what's going on. God is speaking to his covenant nation. He's saying, when you go into the land of Canaan, there are going to be people around you who are doing things like this. And I don't want you to mimic them. I don't want you to do what they're doing, and he lists a whole slew of things. But what's really interesting is that when you look at this list, what the people, what the pagans of the day were doing, was that they were looking to to do one of two things. They were looking to either manipulate the future, or they were seeking to know the future. They were aiming at manipulating their future via pagan sacrifice, or talking with the dead, or using an omen. They were trying to manipulate the future, or, or gain knowledge of the future, And I think this is a pertinent text. I think it, 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 we should at least pause and consider what this text is saying. We should carefully consider the implications of this text. I think when we seek, if we're looking at near-death experiences and we're looking at books, and we seek to know the details of our eternal future by consulting the dead, or at least those who are near death, I think it's a pertinent text that at least we should consider. Because God warns us against seeking to discover the future outside of his revelation. So that's the first point of Deuteronomy. But there's a second set of text, and it's found in Jeremiah. So if you have your Bibles open, flip to your right a little bit, and you get to the prophet Jeremiah. Jeremiah 14, 14 is where I'd like for us to look. And then, thumb, put your thumb or your finger in the New Testament book of 1 John. 1 John chapter 4. Because both of these texts, I think, show us the second Pertinent points. Number two, we are told to exercise discernment regarding claims of revelation. That is, when people speak of what God has revealed to them and claim it to be authoritative as truth, the Bible says we need to be discerning about those claims of what is true, what is revelation. So starting in Jeremiah 14 and then moving into 1 John, both Jeremiah and John warn us about false prophets that they can arise from among God's people. And they rise us that we should test every spirit, that we should test every claim of revelation with the scripture. So let's read Jer- uh, Jeremiah 14, 14, first. It's on the screen. It says this, Then the Lord said to me, The prophets are prophesying lies in my name. I have not sent them or appointed them or spoken to them. They are prophesying to you false visions, divinations, idolatries, and the delusions, catch this, of their own minds. And so in the Old Testament, Jeremiah, through the prophet Jeremiah, God warns his people. He says, listen, there will be prophets that will arise, and they will speak visions that are false. They will have visions indeed, but they will be false. They will have divinations and idolatries, and they will simply think them up of their own minds. So he warns his old covenant people, just beware of this. And then we see a very common command in 1 John 4. 1 John 4 says this, Dear friends, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they're from God. Because, and here he gives the reason, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. And so we have this dual warning that when there is claim of further revelation, when people claim to know the truth definitively, as in not all near-death experiences, but many of them, claim to be from God, we need to exercise discernment and we need to true them up with the claims of Scripture. And so one thing we know for certain, right, if we're reading a book and the author says something in an experience that he or she has and we know that it directly contradicts Scripture, we read it and we know, I, I know the Bible is not just ambiguous, the Bible says otherwise, right? Well, then we know clearly we can dismiss this One detail that I found interesting in the one or two books that I read, and then as I read tidbits from other books, one of the things that I I found just interesting about many of the near-death experience books is that the details are often wildly divergent. That is, they, they disagree. How old are people in heaven? Are they young? Are they old? Are they teenagers? What do they look like? All of these details, if you read in mass these books, a lot of them contradict each other. And so we have to ask, which is right, which is the correct revelation. And so if it contradicts the Bible, clearly we can, we can dismiss it. But here's uh, an important question. But what about the details given in these books or accounts that don't contradict the Bible? That is, they don't contradict anything the Bible says about heaven or hell. They're just simply absent. They're not revealed. Well, that leads us to our uh, third set of verses our third set of verses, starting in 1 Corinthians and moving back to Deuteronomy. The third point is this. We are, to not, we are not to speculate beyond what the Bible reveals. And we're to be satisfied with what it does reveal. And so what about details given in these books? And they don't contradict, but we just, we just don't know. The Bible doesn't address them. Well, in two places, Paul in 1 Corinthians 4, and then Moses in Deuteronomy 29, Encourages us not to go beyond what the Bible reveals, but rather to be satisfied with what the Bible does not reveal. Again, 1 Corinthians 4, 6. Paul says this to the Corinthians. He says, Now, brothers and sisters, I've applied these things, the things that he's written before, I've applied these things to myself and to Apollos for your benefit. Notice what he says now. So that you may learn from us the meaning of the saying, Do not go beyond what is written. Then you will not be puffed up in being a follower of one of us over against the other. So here's what was going on. We just went over Corinthians, so I hope it's kind of fresh in your mind. But essentially what was going on is that there were factions, there were divisions in the church, and they were putting one leader against the other, and they were adding philosophy and rhetoric. They were saying, whoa, this guy is an amazing philosopher, and his rhetoric is awesome. That is the biblical qualification for leadership. And Paul says, no, 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 no. That's that's not really a biblical qualification qualification for leadership. Don't go beyond what is written. That is, don't go beyond what the Bible reveals about qualifications for leadership, talking about Scripture. Not to go beyond, not to speculate beyond what the Scripture reveals, at least in an authoritative way. Again, going back to Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 29. I think this is a pertinent text. It says, The secret things belong to the Lord, but the things revealed belong to who? To us. The things revealed belong to us and our children forever, that we may follow all of the words of this law. Notice the contrast, right? The the author, Moses, here, he says that there are secret things, that is, in contrast to things that are revealed in Scripture. God has chosen to reveal certain things, but God has chosen to reveal not everything, right? There are some things that God has chosen not to reveal, Moses calls them secret things, and they belong to the Lord. That is, the Lord alone knows those things. But the things that he has revealed, the things that he has revealed to us in Scripture, well, they belong to us, right? And we should be satisfied with what God reveals to us on secret matters, including matters of heaven and hell. So this is what this means. I think this is what this third point means. This means that even if the details of near-death experiences don't contradict scripture, even if they don't contradict scripture, if they don't, if details don't contradict scripture, I can say, I cannot say, excuse me, I cannot say that they cannot be true. In other words, we don't know, right? Is the Holy Spirit blue? I don't know. Do people have halos? I don't know. The scripture does not reveal that. So I, I can't say they're not true. But I think what these verses warn us, these verses warn us by to de- of definitively saying that they are true. Does that make sense? I can't deny it, but these scriptures say, hey, don't, don't say it's absolutely true if it's not revealed. And I think that's a very pertinent idea. So, moving into point number four. Some people may argue, and I've heard this argued in, in, in good faith, and it, it's understandable. Some people will argue that these non-contrary, non-contradicting details, right? The details we find in, in some of these books— they don't contradict Scripture, and they will say, listen, I think some of these details can bolster my faith. They can bolster my faith in heaven and in hell or, or the Scripture. Or maybe even they can convince someone who's, who's not a believer of heaven and of hell. And that's a reasonable idea. But I think we need to consider a, a, a fourth text. So turn with me to the Gospel of Luke. Back to your New Testament. The Gospel of Luke, it's easy to find. Luke chapter 16. Because in Luke chapter 16— Verses 27 through 31, Jesus tells us that the Bible is sufficient to base our faith in heaven and hell upon. Jesus tells us that the Bible is sufficient to base our faith both in heaven and in hell upon. In Luke chapter 16, just to set the stage, in Luke chapter 16, we have probably a familiar story to many of you. There is a a story, whether a parable or not, Jesus tells this story of a rich man. And this rich man is not named. He lived it up during the lifetime. But when he died, he went to hell. And the Bible describes his experience in hell. In contrast, there is a poor man. Remember his name? Lazarus. His name was Lazarus. And this poor man just begged for the crumbs from this rich man's table. And this rich man treated him just like dirt. But when Lazarus died, he goes to heaven. And so Jesus tells this story, story, this parable. And it reveals much about heaven, much about hell, much about eternity. But I want to focus our efforts on verses 27 through 31, because in this dialogue, in this story, the rich man goes to hell, the poor man Lazarus goes to heaven. And starting in verse 27, we have a really informative dialogue between the rich man who is in hell and Abraham who is with Lazarus in heaven. So let's, let's read this together, starting in verse 27. He answered, that is, the rich man. He answered, Then I beg you, Father, speaking to Abraham, then I beg you, Father, to send Lazarus to my family. Who's in heaven? To to send Lazarus to my family. For I have five brothers. Let him warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. In other words, this is very reasonable, right? He says, Listen, would you, would you send Lazarus? Lazarus is in heaven. Would you send him back to the earth, right? Would you raise, raise him up from the dead so that he will go? I've got brothers. I don't want them to end up in this place of torment and hell. Would you resurrect him and send him back so that he can speak of the reality of heaven and of hell? It's a reasonable request. But boy, Abraham's response, it's amazing. It's amazing. Abraham replied in verse 29, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. What is he saying? He's saying they have God's revealed revelation. Moses and the prophets. That's, that's his way of saying the Old Testament. What is he saying? He's saying if they want to find out about heaven heaven, and about hell, and about how you end up in heaven, and how you end up in hell, where does Abraham point, point them to? The Bible, right? He points them to the Bible. They have Moses, they have the prophets. Let them listen to them. Verse 30, no, Father Abraham, he said, but, here's, catch this, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent, right? So he, he, he pushes back, Listen, if you just send someone back from the dead, then they will repent. Then they will believe that heaven and hell is real. I don't want them to end up in hell, right? He says, just send someone from the dead. Verse 31, Jesus' words are telling. He said to them, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced Even if someone rises from the dead. So what is Jesus' point? Did you catch that? Even if someone rises from the dead, even if I were to send, in theory, Lazarus, this man who is in heaven now, and even if he goes down, comes back to life, and speaks of his experience in heaven and hell and the reality of it, what does Jesus say? If they don't believe what the Bible says, they won't believe what you say. Did you catch that? This is very pertinent as we think about near-death experiences. What it means is that even if these experiences were true, even if they were from God, a person, if they will not accept what the Bible reveals, then they will not listen to anything else. So here, clearly, Jesus emphasizes the sufficiency of the Bible, the sufficiency of the Scripture for us to know about heaven and about hell and why we end up in either place. Number five. The last pertinent text is found in the Gospel of John. So turn with me to John chapter 3. John chapter 3, verses 12 through 13. Again, I think a very pertinent text. Number five. Some Scriptures may, and I use the word may intentionally, Some scriptures may rule out, from a biblical perspective, the possibility of a near-death experience. I use the word may here because the text that we're about to read in John chapter 3, verses 12 through 13, has numerous reasonable interpretations. So I'm not going to be dogmatic here. Um, I'm going to offer to you what, to me, seems to be the plainest, understanding of what Jesus says here in John chapter 3. And I I think if we take and accept what is the plainest understanding of what Jesus says, then it it might very well rule out the possibility of a true near-death experience. John chapter 3, let's read verses 12 through 13. Of course, uh, he's speaking to Nicodemus, right? This is the famous, John 3.16 is in this passage, right? Lots of good stuff. He's speaking to, to Nicodemus and they're going back and forth. Jesus tells him he's got to be born again. Nicodemus is like, what? You know, like he's not getting it, right? Jesus is using earthly illustrations to illustrate heavenly truths. And it's just going right over Nicodemus' head. And so Jesus says this in verse 12, I've spoken to you of earthly things. That is, I'm using earthly images to convey heavenly truth. I've spoken to you of earthly things and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? So Jesus is going to speak of heavenly things, things that pertain to eternity, things that pertain to life and death. He's going to speak with authority. And he's going to explain in verse 13 why he can speak with authority about things of heaven and hell and eternity. Verse 13, no one has ever gone, no one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man, speaking, of course, about himself. So Jesus is explaining why he can teach with authority of heavenly things, and he gives the reason, because no one had, at least until that point, no one had gone into heaven in the way that he had. No one had gone into heaven and returned to earth, except for he himself, because he came from heaven, because his Eternal home was heaven. He could speak authoritatively about heavenly matters. This is what it says to me. I think this is the plainest understanding. However, I'll humbly say that there are are other possibilities. But if this is what Jesus means, if this is the plainest reading, and if if, if I'm understanding him right, if this is the proper interpretation, then it matters greatly for how we think about near-death experiences. Jesus then would explicitly rule out the possibility of any, catch this, authoritative teaching, of any authoritative teaching on heavenly matters or hell for that matter, from one who claims to have died or be near death, gone to heaven or hell, and come back to teach on it. It's something for us to consider. So the question I want to leave us with is simply this. Is heaven for real? Is heaven for real? We've got a movie that says so. We've got a book that says so. In fact, we've got lots of books, <laughs> lots of books that says heaven is for real. So, is heaven for real? I want to ask you. And uh, I think, I hope most of you would say yes. Of all of you would say yes, that heaven is for real. So, moving on from that, the real question then becomes, if heaven and hell are real, the real question then becomes, why? Why? How do we know? How do we know? What do we base our faith upon? What do we base our eternity upon? Do we know that heaven is for real? Because Hollywood produces a movie called Heaven is for Real? Is that how we know that heaven is for real? Do we know that heaven is for real because uh, one of the authors who wrote 90 Minutes in Heaven, right? Because uh, uh, Don Piper says he spent 90 minutes in heaven? Is that how we know? How do we know hell is real? Because Bill Weiss says that he spent 23 minutes there. How do we know? What do we base our faith upon? Do we base it upon the Bible? Friends, heaven and hell, for that matter, it is real. Heaven is real. And hell is real. But it's because God has revealed it to be so. It's because God, through the scriptures, has revealed it to be so. And friends, on this, on this we can bake our lives. We can bank our faith, and we can bank our eternity. Let's pray. Father, these are weighty matters. I pray that we would handle your revealed word to us rightly, that we might understand it. Father, we don't want to be um, in the business of critiquing this and that and being utterly um, dogmatic. We, we, we We don't want to be overly critical. And yet, the reality is, is that many of us, we are, or have, or will, many of our fellow believers have consumed these books, and we need to think rightly about them, or at least begin to be biblically informed so that we can understand. Father, regardless of what whomever says, we trust, as Jesus says, that the Scripture is sufficient. It's sufficient to base our faith in heaven upon. It's sufficient to base our belief and faith in hell upon. Father, may we obey Deuteronomy 29:29 29, 29 and not speculate beyond what the Bible reveals in any authoritative manner. But may we be satisfied. The secret things belong to you, but what is revealed belongs to us, and may we revel and examine and explore and rejoice in what you have revealed about heaven and hell, because it is much and it is enough for us to place our faith in Jesus Christ. Father, may we exercise discernment as we think about competing or additional claims of revelation. Father, we know that heaven and hell are real because you have revealed it to us. And I pray if there's a man or a woman, a boy or a girl, and they don't know definitively, certainly, where they will be when they die. if they don't know that they will be with you and with the Son and with the Holy Spirit forever in heaven because it is indeed real. May they now bow their knee to your son, Jesus. May they confess that they fall short of living a life that completely glorifies you, that it completely obeys you, and they've fallen short of that. And may they confess and repent of their sin, of living apart from you. May they turn to Christ, the perfect Son of God, perfect human, who lived perfectly, obediently in our place where we never could, who died on the cross bearing our wrath, taking our hell that we deserved, taking that punishment for us and then rising from the dead, defeating death and sin and Satan so that we can have eternal life now and we can be changed. We can have new and eternal life. And one day we will be raised as he is. May they turn and personally receive this good gift of salvation so that they may know, that they may know that they have eternal life, that they may know that upon their death, they will be in heaven with you. Father, may there not be a man or a woman or a boy or a girl. May there not be a one from this church that dies and spends eternity in hell because they have not decided to trust in Christ. We ask it in the name of Jesus, our good Savior, the one who was from heaven and who descended down from heaven into earth, taking on full humanity to be our Savior, only to go back there promising to raise us one day. Jesus, would you come quickly? We know that you're preparing a home for us. And next week, we anticipate looking into what that home will be like. We ask it in the name of Jesus and all of God's people said together. Amen. Guys, thanks for being here. Next week, we'll get into what happens one minute after you die. Thanks.